0: What's up, military millionaires? I'm your host, David Pray and we are here today with Aaron Amuchastegui, the real estate rock star, who is coming to us live from Austin, Texas, a house flipper for, man, 15, 20 years, who's been buying foreclosures and has been just crushing it in the real estate space for a long time. Uh, he hosts the Real Estate Rockstar podcast. And Finally got to meet him in person in Tahoe two weeks ago at the GoBundance Winter Mastermind event. And we had a good long conversation and he opened my eyes to a couple of things we enjoyed. Uh, well, at least I enjoyed talking and he did not hate it enough that he said no when I asked him to be on my podcast. And so here we are. And Aaron, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Yeah. And here we are. It was really cool to meet you, man. The uh, You know, for listeners, we're at this event probably 200 people in there. Maybe two. It was one of the biggest skill abundance events yeah. we've ever had. Sold out in like a week. It was crazy. And one of the first exercises was essentially like ask these five questions and go find somebody completely at random in the room. And you're and i and we're like walking through and there's people everywhere just like matching and and I had never uh, met David before and we just matched up and as we started chatting we were like wait I do know you yeah <laughs> uh, you know we knew each other from online from the podcast from Military to Millionaire like like. Every, it started really clicking and for both of us. So we really enjoyed uh, getting to meet, although at those events it's brief, and we thought what a better way to get to know each other better than to, than to like come on the podcast and get to chat. So I'm, I'm, I really appreciate the invite.
0: Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vehicle one, you're cleared to depart friendly lines. Roger. Vic one, Oscar Mike. Hey everybody, if you have not heard yet, we are doing a live in-person real estate event may 19th through the 21st in tampa florida i would love to see you there we have 50 slots 13 are already sold and it's only open for war room mastermind members so if you are a war room member make sure you head on over to the circle community and grab your ticket right now secure your spot if you are not in the war room mastermind and you've been thinking about it Hit me up so I can get you that mastermind application and you can get enrolled and get a spot because they're selling quickly. We only announced the spots two days ago. And like I said, 13 of the 50 are already gone. So I'd love to have you there. We're going to have some really cool speakers. We're going to do some happy hours, some drinks, some hangouts, some networking, some restaurants, some really cool speakers, guest speakers, keynote, whatever. And we're going to do some property tours and some uh, cold plunges and sauna action. So good times for all. Come hang out. See you in Tampa. Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've listened to the show a few times and and enjoy uh you know the content you put out and I, we have mutual connections, mutual friends, and so uh, this is definitely uh you know it's it's a good time and and I appreciate you coming on. So uh, why don't you give the the listeners? I'm sure there are at least one or two listeners who have never heard of you before, which is just a shame. So could you give the a little bit of the backstory and an introduction to who you are and and you know just bring us up to speed?
1: Yeah. The, the the little backstory i keep trying to get the elevator pitch shorter and shorter i never know how long
0: <laughs> it's the hard it, the can. older you get the longer it seems to get the huh?
1: older you get the longer it gets you figure out which parts are most important i'm going to start in the real estate part of my world right so the i grew up in construction and real estate you know the through that process kind of took time i was working took time off you know had a bunch of pivots in the world went back to college and studied construction management and I graduated from college when I was 25 years old. So after like a few years off and on in there, you're not supposed to graduate at 25. I graduate, you know, most people get out of there by like 21, 22. I partied too much. I made some bad decisions. So 25 is when I finished, but it was really, really perfect. Cause that was 2005. That was the height of the housing boom. I had studied construction management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which was like the best school in the country for construction management at the time. Was also graduating in Southern California at the height of the housing boom. So we like heavily recruited. So 2005, like I graduated from college, I'm getting paid six figures a year. I'm running operations for this home builder company. And man, it was like the land of milk and honey. We were we were building these houses in like sixty days. Before they were done, buyers had already, you know, bought them essentially. We were golfing like two days a week. It was like this <laughs> fine oil machine. It was ridiculous. It was the wrong expectation of what life was gonna be like in real estate. I tell you that much. 25 year old kid like, well, I graduated from college now I have my cush job and I'm off to the race. My life is easy. Uh, yeah. Market crashed like two years later, pretty quickly and pretty, you know, I-, I didn't really see it at the time because we were in the central coast market like Santa Barbara, where it was not really getting impacted as much. But the company I worked for had, you know, hundreds of homes in Northern California, in Modesto and Sacramento and kind of like ground zero. (laughs) Yeah. So one weekend they called me and they said, hey, we're we're actually we just laid off 70 people. There's five of you guys left. It's like the three owners, the cousin and me. Um, and hey, you got to move from beautiful Santa Barbara to Sacramento next week if you want to keep your job. And when I got up there, I learned what was going on with foreclosures because I drove through these neighborhoods where they had hundreds of houses and properties are abandoned, and you know Man. weeds are six feet tall, and it was like it was crazy. It was like the movies, but worse. It was just absolutely like you couldn't really fathom it unless you saw it. And we were trying to do all sorts of stuff. We went from, you know, golfing a couple days a week to we were putting our bags on and we were doing the cleanup ourselves. We were like, essentially, we tried to, we spent the next year trying to do these bank workouts for the owners where we had all these houses that were like halfway finished. Trades wouldn't do work for us anymore because we didn't have any money to pay the bills. And the uh, the owners were just trying to not get, you know, foreclosed on or get all their personal assets taken by the banks. And so we were doing all these workouts where the banks essentially realized like, okay, your loan on this house is $700,000. Houses in that neighborhood are only selling for 300,000. We know we're not going to get made whole. They didn't want to foreclose and then have to start over. So the deal they kind of made was like, you guys do the best you can to sell them for as much as you possibly can. And then once they're sold, we're not going to go after them personally. Um, and so it was like us working hard to sell houses for two hundred fifty thousand, three hundred thousand $300,000, the, Jeez. you know, 2000, Nice. That was like 2008, beginning of 2009. We're still trying all these different businesses. You know, we did some work for like a hotel in Napa because we were like, well, maybe we're. it was all these pivots. Well, so we can no longer be a home builder. What skills do we have? We were good at like rounding up trades. So we started like finding residential trades and bidding on commercial jobs because commercial contractors were predominantly more expensive. So we could use our residential framers, do the commercial jobs, you know, do a markup and make money that way. we kind of got through 2009 with part of that. And then we discovered this courthouse step foreclosure auction business. And we kind of discovered it because we saw that like REOs were happening. So REOs of foreclosure. We'd drive by, there's a for sale sign for foreclosure. We'd go to the open house. There were like holes in the wall and like paint. But we were like, this just needs a little bit of fix up. And someone would want to buy it. There were a lot of buyers at the time that wanted to buy houses for $250,000. But a lot of sellers that were still stuck at that $700,000 price point so couldn't unless it got foreclosed on or unless it became a short sale. So we wanted to essentially become house flippers, but we kept making offers on all these foreclosures and all these REOs. And it didn't matter what we did. They always had a better offer. And, you know, we, it was like, Oh, we'd make an offer on the second day. They go, oh, we already accepted one. So then we got to the point where we'd make offers five seconds after the listing came out. You know, we just found figured out our own system. Oh, they already had an accepted offer. We found out later. They just had their own like people that they were selling these houses to. Because mm-hmm. they knew they were going to sell it to that person for two hundred thousand. That person was going to fix it for ten thousand dollars, and then hire them again to list it for two fifty or two sixty, whatever the deal was. So we couldn't get our foot in the door on doing that. And again, we were like, "What what skills do we have that are transferable?" And housing was just where we stuck because the, the hotel thing worked for a little while. We discovered the courthouse step auctions by kind of like reading about well, what happens, what the foreclosure really, how does it really work? There were no classes about it. Nobody was really teaching it there was a website at the time called foreclosure radar that kind of posted like, Hey, this is scheduled for foreclosure, but nobody really knew what that meant. So I went to the courthouse. I started reading all the documents, learning what that would be like. And on the actual loan document, it says like on such and such day, there will be a, you know, there's a notice of default. This person hasn't made their payment on such and such day. They're going to, there's a foreclosure auction. We showed up at that address and got to watch it. And we got to start watching foreclosures happen. And we we're like, Whoa, this is a trip. A couple weeks later, we were able to buy our first uh, foreclosure at auction. Um, that was a really kind of fun story. We had done the research. We had, you know, we had said like, okay, so it's a it's a first lien. We went and looked at the property. Our the owner of our company owned a house the house next door. That was kind of what got us into it. And he said, man, if you could get it for this price, that's a great deal. And we show up with cashier's checks. And a guy comes in on a skateboard. His name's Eddie. He puts his laptop on a trash can and he starts calling out bids. And the same two or three people that we saw there the week prior were there like buying houses. And the address for this one comes up. And he goes, anyone want it? Going once, going twice. And we kind of raise our hand. And he goes, do you want to bid? And we go, uh, yeah. He goes, do you want to bid a penny over? Uh, Yeah. And he goes, going once, going twice, sold. And then the other three people there did a gasp. Like, <gasps> and we're already terrified. We have no money. We barely had enough money for those cashier checks just from that hotel job, really. You know, and so we're, we're like terrified. We're scared for the next couple of weeks. Like, are we actually going to get it? We ask him like, hey, why doesn't this receipt say the address on it? And he goes, oh, because you're buying a. A note, you're foreclosing on a note. We don't put the addresses. We don't even know what address it is. And so we were terrified for the next two weeks. But long story short was two weeks later, we get a deed. We record the deed. We bought that house for, I think, like $120,000. You know, there was somebody living in the house. We paid them $4,000 to move out. We paid our painter to go paint it. We paid our cleaners to go clean it. We sold it for $200,000 like a couple weeks later. And it was in a market like today where it was like a buyer's market. Stuff wasn't selling very fast. But we learned that if you could bring a property to market that was turnkey, move in ready, that a first time home buyer would not have to put any money into it. And if you could bring it at a price they could actually afford, a first time home buyer will pay you whatever they can. They will buy the biggest house they possibly can. They will give you as much of their paycheck as the lender will let them, but they're Absolutely. still capped out somewhere. Yep. So as long as you can bring something to market at that price, very quickly over the next you know, three years, I turned it into a really large flipping machine. I still did it with them for a little bit. My second daughter was born six weeks early, she was born premature when she was up like in the hospital you know, with the bubblers attached to her mouth. I was thinking, man, this is my fault. My wife was nine months pregnant. She was working at a casino as a waitress because we were just struggling because I'd had this big pay cut. That was my moment to quit my job and become the entrepreneur. Over the next few years, flipped like a thousand houses. We didn't keep any as rentals. We flipped them we built it as a fund. We ran it like a home builder. It was an amazing, crazy once in a lifetime opportunity. In 2012, 2013, Blackstone came into that market. And they started buying rentals. I had a chance to work with them, but I didn't really know um, who Blackstone was. I was too young and too cocky. I didn't have mentors that that warned me about that. So I didn't take advantage of that knowledge when I could have. They put me out of business in 2013. And I remember uh, I had a couple years of like some real trying times. 2015, I discovered an auction out in Texas. And that time... um, I went out there to go buy like an apartment complex. I went to auction I got scared. I got cold feet cause I hadn't bought a house in like a couple years. And I remember calling my wife going, man, I got cold feet. She's like, we couldn't even afford the Southwest ticket that you were on to get out there. Like, what do you mean you didn't bid? So I'm like pretty sad, pretty bummed out. And then all of a sudden another trustee shows up and he sells like 50 houses and nobody's standing there. And I was like, this is exactly like California, 2009. It's essentially my second chance. When I bought my first house in California, in 2009, There was three people at auction and like 100 houses sold. When I got put out of business in 2012, 2013, there was like three houses going to sale and 100 bidders. So you were no longer going to get a deal. When I found uh, California in 2015, there's 100 houses going to sale, no bidders. Next month, I flew out. I said, maybe I got a big opportunity out here. Next month, I flew out on a Friday. I drove a bunch of houses. On Saturday, I did title. On Sunday, I comped them. Went to auction on Tuesday. I bought two houses. And it was like, holy crap, I was off to the races. Big thing I learned that time, I remember when I was broke in 2014, I was like, I made millions flipping houses. I flipped a thousand houses. If I have just kept 50 of those as rentals, I'd have been set for life. If I had just kept 10 of those for rentals. So my new mission starting in 2015 was to keep as many as I could as rentals. I'd buy 10, I'd flip one for down payments. I'd keep nine as rentals. And now we have 850 single family rentals out here in Texas. Part of why I went big in Texas was I said, housing prices will never go up. I didn't want to see those big swings again. But when COVID hit, housing prices went up. So the really big bet out here, 2015, 2016, I would just fly out every month, buy 10 houses, fly back. Now I live in Texas. I don't have to fly out here anymore. But that was my whirlwind journey of like learning how to like being a home builder and then losing it all. And then being a house flipper, doing really, really well, but not having any mentors about how to run my business and making all sorts of mistakes. I was making tons of money. I should have been set for life, but I didn't make good decisions, and then kind of my third reset was going back and saying, "Let's just do a bunch of singles. Let's just buy a bunch of houses as singles, and then in a few years, my life will be easy."
0: Did you say eight hundred and fifty rentals? Yes,
1: yeah, so I've got eight hundred and fifty single family rentals um, that are all within about an hour and a half drive of Austin, <laughs> Texas. And yeah, that's a lot, right? Like that starting in twenty
0: fifteen, that's one hundred and twenty houses a year. Yep. And good sometimes, good sometimes lord.
1: Bigger batches. But that's exactly what I would do. I would fly out. I'd buy 10.
0: I'd say for anyone running the math on that, that's 10 a month, which is an insane number of flips to be managing, especially when you don't initially live in Texas. And I mean, obviously you you grew into that. You didn't start at 10 on month one, but I mean, that means at some point you were doing much more than 10.
1: Yeah. There was, and it, you know, what's funny at first it was like, I mean, I was traumatized in like 2013, 2014, 2015, like I had had big money and I'd lost it all. And I was like worried about making my own mortgage. And so this time was like, I was trying to avoid that. But sometimes it was tough because I would go through the work. I'd buy it and I'd fix it. I put a renter in it. I put a loan on it. And my net income was like a hundred dollars a month for that house. And it was like, it, and the brain was going like, just flip this one again. Like, just do what you did last time. Just sell it as a flip, make 20 grand. Like you're barely eating right now. You're barely surviving. And, um, and it was boring it was like, okay, I did a lot of work and now my cash flow goes up by $200 a month. It took a while to see the results in that bet. And yeah. it was one of these. Um, and if I hadn't had such a, like I'd crashed in 2013, 2014, I probably would not have had the patience to stick with that. But it was like a second chance. I'd done it once before. And um, yeah, I had to scale up to it. There's lots of, I mean, there's lots of challenges with trying to fix houses out of state. Um, sometimes we still have challenges with it. You know, there's ways that you grow into it and finding You know, good trades, and you know at the beginning, the first several months, it was just me too. It would just be when I'd fly out, I'd I'd go change locks, I'd take pictures, I and then I'd go back. But the benefit of Texas compared to California, in California, (laughs) auction was every day.
0: Oh, I thought you were about to talk about tenant friendly.
1: Oh, I mean, there's okay, there's a million. (laughs) The only benefit taxes,
0: other other than property taxes, yes. But auction wise,
1: the uh, the auction in California happened every day. But in Texas, it's only once a month.
0: Mm. So
1: it was much easier to like fly out there, never miss an auction. Because you can't really do auction once a month in California. You'll show up on the, the one day nothing happens. So, yeah. But, yeah, there's a bunch more things about the, the tenant laws in Texas are much better than California. <laughs>
0: uh, I live in Springfield, Missouri, and I invest locally uh, just kind of where i always was it's similar to texas just more affordable still although growing quickly right now um major not major hub but fairly large hub third largest city in missouri Um, and right on two major highways and lots of it's like a small a weird small town with like five billionaires that nobody knows about because it's like oh yeah nobody's heard of springfield missouri and then you're like oh but O'Reilly's is headquartered there and Bass Pro and Kraft has a plant and Budweiser and Amazon. And there's like four or five billionaires that live here in the largest uh, privately owned trucking company in the nation. And so it's like, Hmm, there's a lot of industries that all.
1: I spent some time in Fayetteville, Arkansas and Bentonville this last year. My daughter was, was, had a medical issue that her doctor was there. So she lived there for like six or seven months. My wife and I took turns living up there. But, but that Benville was another place like that, where it's like the the home of Walmart.
0: Yeah. Right. So like know. that's
1: where the, Wal- that's where the Walton family is. So that's like one big thing, but plus there's like big shipping companies and Tyson foods and School. there's all, there's all these different, uh, I guess there's maybe five, six giant companies, giant families, major university. That. Yeah. Yeah. That are, that, are, that are, yeah. The university was fun to drive through too.
0: My goodness, I'm running the math on like, I'm still in my head, like 850. I couldn't, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions that while I want to, and we may come back to that, I'm curious and this might be more timely just, just because of where things are right now as we record this in February of 23, as somebody who has 850 rentals and has exploded that over the last, you know, seven years, but is also been through the crash. What does your business look like right now? Are you still buying at that scale? Have you slowed down? What are you? I'm curious what your strategy is going into 23, uh, especially because I mean the Austin markets, from what I understand, slowed a little bit, but it's had a crazy last few year run up. I guess just kind of curious what your what your strategy is, what your outlook is uh, for the next year or two, and and then maybe we dig into you know the specifics of how you did. I mean that's yeah. (laughs)
1: You know, as I get into thinking about like, what's going on right now in the world in real estate, because, because it's a big deal, what's going on. It's, it's very different. Um, and like, as a piece of advice I give to listeners out there and investors and, and, you know, different people out there, I made 90% of my, we- I started doing, I mean, I, I got into real estate 20 years ago. I started my own business 15 years ago. I made 90% of my wealth. In like probably 30 months, 24 months of that uh, in that. Now, I would say, you know, 2010 was a big, big chance, but i lost all that wealth. But like 2015, when I went really, really big and I was like first one buying real, and I was like, I'm going to go as big as I can and I'll get as many houses as I can when I first discovered that market. Um, and then 2021 was another one of those times where like first six months of the year, I was like, hey, there's still a lot of runway here. And I'm going to buy as many properties as I possibly can. And so I was going buying whole neighborhoods out, January 2021, February 2021. People had started to slow down a little bit because they were thinking, man, real estate really boomed last year. I don't think 2021 is going to be like that. And I went really big. And so I bought hundreds of units in the first few months of 2021, and which was a perfect because by the end of 2021, when these housing developments were getting done, they were worth 25 to 30% more than I got them in contract for. I was able to get hundred percent financing really, really good rates. And so, so the last like six or nine months, it's kind of been this lull where, you know, not much has been going on. I just had to do some major layoffs because for about nine months I had staff and an overhead and I was having a tough time, you know, mentally saying like, Hey, uh, I don't have any, we don't have any flips coming in right now. You know, with the, when, the, when the rates went up, our business slowed way, way down. And so the point of, of telling people like, hey, there's like times in your life where if you go really big, that becomes this big opportunity. There's also times to be patient and wait. Yeah. Like be patient and wait for that good time. And what I started telling people back in October, November is I just need to make sure I don't lose any money over the next year or two while I wait for my opportunity to go big again. Because there will be this moment where it's time to go really, really big. And so I decided in October, November, December to really cut back on my overhead to essentially just be able to collect on my rentals. Uh, we kept our, we kept, the, I still have my team that's managing my rentals, but any sort of like the flips and the big kind of pops, like the buying the house and selling it right after we closed on it, you know, quick stuff had slowed way down we said we weren't doing really any of that. And I've had to mentally tell myself, I'm not going to see any really big pops over the next year. Um, so what am I going to see? So one, the strategy was first tighten up shop, get really, really tight on all the expenses and really get back into the into the foxhole myself. And people are like, what? Like I, I last week, last week I started driving foreclosures again that were scheduled for auction. I went to auction and I went and bought a house and the and that in the past, that'd be something I'd have a bunch of team members doing that. But if I'm cutting down on overhead and I'm trying to get a really good understanding of what's actually happening with the market, I got to do it myself. So I can really, every time I built businesses and scaled them, I I ran the businesses for a while myself. So I could figure out what I thought the best practices were and then hire. Yeah. So fast forward, like, what do I think it looks like right now? I think today's real estate market looks just like it did in 2010 with like a couple slight variables. So in 2010, there was, you know, thousands of houses on the market. Let's say for $500,000 in an area in Sacramento, thousands of houses, but the only ones that were selling were ones that were selling for 300000 So everyone wanted to buy every house. Like every, even those ones at $500,000, they were listed as short sales. They would all get multiple offers, but it would come to a point where the best offer that a first-time home buyer could afford would, let's say, be like two seventy-five, dollars and the bank would say, no, we're not going to accept that as a short sale. And then the house would get foreclosed on, right? And so why, how is that related to today? Because we're not having the crazy foreclosures that we were having back then. No, and like the crash that's happened, I think most of it's kind of already happened. We've had this giant correction, but we're not seeing it all on paper yet. So, like, what does mm-hmm. that really mean? Like the so now, in, in what we have in Austin is we have um, you know houses that were five hundred thousand dollars last year are now listed at four hundred thousand. When we put them on the market, we get multiple offers, but our best offers like three twenty, three thirty. Like that's a big difference between yeah, the five hundred. And the three thirty. Now I'm a savvy investor. I, I wanted to say I, I call myself that. I decided to list eight hundred and fifty is pounds. not
0: enough reps. You gotta you're right. gonna have to do a couple well, more.
1: I, yeah, I don't want to sound like an ass <laughs> but it's like I think I'm. I'm that's not counting
0: me. the hundreds you flipped on top of that, or any other house you've ever sold. So the thousand 1, yeah. 1500 reps you've got in is just not gonna cut it. You're gonna have to think, do at least yeah, another two
1: so, so I was smart enough. I was like, hey, I'm smart enough to say, hey, instead of listing it at five hundred, I'm gonna list it at four hundred. Because that's where the market is, and then the best offers I get are like three hundred and twenty. And so what that what that's showing me is it's just like two thousand and ten. In two thousand and ten, the banks did not want to sell it for the price that they were worth. Right, they didn't want to accept a short sale for the actual price they were worth. They were still just gonna gonna try to stick it out and hold it out. What we have right now is the same thing with sellers. So there's still a lot of sellers for that house that would be listing at five hundred. And, and then there's some sellers like me that are listed at 400, but who is actually going to sell it at 320, at 330, mm-hmm. right? So where is the opportunity? What is the opportunity I'm finding right now? I think the opportunity is just like that 2010 opportunity where we had to buy foreclosures, fix them and bring them to market at a price that people could, could pay. And so at that $320,000 price point, so that means so. Is it just foreclosures? There's all sorts of way to buy like distressed housing at a discount. Yep. There's website. You can like build a website and have people come to you. You can do door knocking. You can do mailers. You can reach out to people that have liens on their houses. I, I do all sorts of different ways and show people all sorts of different ways to do that. But the biggest opportunity right now is buy a distressed property at a discount that there's something really, really wrong with that. There's still enough room to make a profit if you have to sell it at what today's true value is which isn't what stuff is listing for. And it's not what it's going pending for, but it's what buyers can actually pay. And so I decided to try that experiment last week. I hadn't bought a house in like nine months because I've been just kind of sitting tight. But I went to auction myself. I bought it at a price that I'll be able to make it turnkey and bring it to market for, you know, $25,000 less than any other thing on the market. And it should be nicer. And, you know, it'll go on the market next week. And we'll see if I, if, you know, if I'm going to get the action and the activity. What I have seen is first-time home buyers are still buying stuff priced really well. It's in good shape. is still is still selling. Um, so yeah, I, it's kind of funny because people are like, "This isn't like last time because of foreclosures and crashing and things like that." It's kind of like we bypassed the foreclosure crash of oh seven oh eight, where we just had everything slow down so dramatically with rates that that adjusted the pricing. Now we want, people are people like we're not going to see the foreclosures that we saw before. That's true.
0: But, yeah, I would but agree with that. We're
1: see this like the people that do get foreclosed on are you know they people out there that are distressed do have equity. I can see the same amount of foreclosures because most people are like, well, I have an equity and I have a really low rate, so they'll just find yeah. ways to to pay it. Yeah. Um, when somebody realizes, oh, they think they have three hundred thousand in equity, right? I'm going to sell my house for five hundred. When they realize they can only sell it for three hundred, they go, oh. Well then, I'm just not going to sell it. I'll just stay here yeah. forever because I have a three and a half percent rate. I was going to do that so I could use two hundred thousand dollars. I was going to you know, use a hundred thousand for this and a hundred thousand to go buy my next house. But if I don't actually have the equity, I'm just staying put. So
0: yeah, and if yeah. They have that's, to move that's, that's with a, makes sense. Yeah, and if they have to move with a two and a half, three, three and a half percent rate fixed for thirty years, then in Austin, even with the market. Coming down a little bit, they'll still be able to cash flow and hold it as a rental. You, you know, yeah. even in a worst case scenario, if they have to move, they could still do that, overtaking the hit. And so that's what I've been telling people is, I don't think you're going to see the foreclosures because, in people's worst case scenario, they should be able to make the payment with a with a renter, or they've got enough equity that they shouldn't be taking a massive hit. To sell, or a combination, or I mean, even worse, worst case, on top of all of that, the assumable mortgages with the two and a half, three percent make a new home buyer still appealing. There are buyers out there who would be willing to pay a little bit over the top for that rate over the current rate that they would qualify for. So, there is so many options that make it. I think the foreclosure is much less realistic, with the exception of maybe mass layoffs in some of these tech bubble areas, but. Uh, we haven't seen that really, even with like, they, they say Amazon and Google have had massive layoffs, but I haven't heard anything about, uh, it seems like a lot of more remote jobs or even international jobs. So I don't know, but I, I, interesting that you bring up, I like the way that you worded that. I like where you worded, uh, that banks aren't willing to sell for what the house is really worth. And I think that's interesting because a lot of people seem to forget in really intense sellers markets or buyers markets at the you know when the pendulum swings really far one way or the other people seem yeah. to forget the mantra that a house is not worth the listing price it's it's yeah. worth what the buyer will pay and what the market dictates and the bank doesn't determine that and the you know nothing determines that but the market the buyer the the the, the sentiment you know and you can list it for whatever you want all day long it, it, yeah. in a buyer's market it doesn't matter <laughs> and uh so i like i like the way you worded that
1: and but, the appraisers try and the you know appraisers try to say like cuz the other concept that all appraisals have used is saying well there was an identical house next door and sold for that so they use the argument that if there's one person that's willing to pay that there's two people that's willing to pay that but in volatile times it like all that gets thrown out the window. Like someone will send me a a project. That's like, we have a land project that the appraiser says that it's worth 1.5 and we can't get anyone to buy it for a million right now. You know, like it doesn't, and it's not that they were wrong. It's just that the, there isn't really a way to catch up. Like when the market starts changing quickly, there just isn't a way to really catch up.
0: Yeah. I've got a house right now that, I, I know I'm underwater on, I, I knew I was under on it, water on it when I refinanced it. But so I had this house, I, I renovated uh, everyone who's listening knows I had a, a project manager who went whatever. And, and the project that we talked about where everything went South and uh, finally sold it two weeks ago. And, Anyway, there were some other projects involved in that timeline, and one of them was uh, one that he had finished right as I, he got terminated and all this other stuff came out. And the, I listed it at 106, little, uh, a non-conforming third bedroom, but if you count that, a 3-1. And, little house, not best part of town. The, the goal was just to flip it. The numbers that we had were off. The repairs were over everything, whatever. Just wanted to get out from under it. listed at one Oh six, had an offer Went under contract at 97 after like three weeks, FHA buyer, they lost their job, fell out of contract, relisted at 97, uh, just to whatever, just to move it sat for three more weeks. And finally I was like, I'm just gonna call my bank and see what they'll do as a refi. And just, I'll just hold it as a rental. Cause I just need to get out from under the, Private lender, whatever. Just do the right thing. Be not with this thing, and the fricking appraisal came back at one twenty five, and so my bank will do eighty five percent loan to value. So I now have a hundred six hundred and seven thousand dollars mortgage on this house that I couldn't sell for ninety seven. I am like, you know, but I mean, it cash it cash flows uh, not much, but I mean, it it holds its own and it's you know fixed for twenty five years, and so I am not really worried about it. And long term, that area is turning and it'll be fine, but it's just not a house that I wanted. For any reason to keep, I was just hoping to just be done with it, but it's not a, it's not a losing situation, but I just laugh because I'm looking at it and I'm like, so stupid. Like, like, this is not the only house that I've had where I was like, oh, the appraisal came in way higher than I thought it would and probably should have. And, but you know,
1: like like, the cool thing is in a few years, time's going to probably save that for you or five years or 10 years. And you mentioned one of like the best things in the world about real estate where it will be more difficult to find those sorts of things to happen right now. But like in 2021, it was, yeah, would get it escrow for 300,000. It would appraise for 400,000. So we would end up being able to refinance it um, for, we'd pull out like, you know, 325,000 and it's tax-free money. Yep. It's so like the beauty of real estate. It's so amazing that when you're actually able to, it's like getting to. I used to be a flipper because I wanted to quit cash. And then I wanted to be a renter because when the spigot turned off, I wanted to have something safe. And the cash out refi that started, you know, the first time I had to experience that was two years ago. I learned that from Blackstone. That's what Blackstone did in 2013, 2014, 2015 mm-hmm. on just a massive level. That's when I finally understood they weren't actually about cash flow. They were about property and values going up. Um, when they first said they were coming to compete with me, I was like, these aren't even good rentals. They're not going to do that but what they knew was this house was two hundred thousand dollars underpriced of replacement costs and they were just gonna start scooping up stuff at replacement cost and all that stuff yeah. but but the so I was like you have to be you could be a flipper or a renter you can't be both the cash out refi you get to be both you essentially get to sell it to yourself you get the cash as if you sold it but then the rental is the long-term cash flow and it's just this really really amazing yep uh, balance. So, yeah, good for you for doing that. You know, I, I told you when we met too, like I've had a lot of great successes, but I had several really bad ones this last year. And where I'm going to I'm going to lose a lot of money on that land deal from like earnest money that I used to tie it up. But I have to remind myself in 2021, I made a lot of money by doing the same thing. I paid earnest money on a bunch of properties to lock in a price. 9 months later, the house were worth 25 to 25% more, so I would close on it. Well, what happened to me this year is I paid earnest money on something a year ago. Well, now the property is not actually worth 25% more. It's actually not even worth what I had an escrow at. And so I'm going to lose that earnest money. So I have to like, I get mad. I get frustrated. Oh, I made a big $200,000 mistake. But I have to remember that same method made me millions a year prior. So I just got to take the good with the bad. Like then if I flip 10 houses, I'm going to lose money on one out of 10 for sure. Now, my last, th- the three that I kind of got near in... March, April, May, this last year, those are all going to end up being losers by the time they close. I've been struggling like crazy with them. I'm going to lose money on all of them. But it's like, but if I if I go back and look at the numbers of like the last 40 I did, I probably only lost money on four or five. It's tough when like three of them are right now when you're trying to, so you said like what else is going on with my strategy right now? My strategy also is to, and a lot of real estate investors, it's like clear the table and clear the slate with anything right now that could get worse that might get worse because the real estate market might get worse. It might not get worse. If it gets worse, you don't want to have any of these bad assets. So that could be something with a balloon payment that's due in like two years. That could be a flip. That's like just been sitting, but you don't want to cut the price. Or you don't want to do that extra work to it yet. There's all these things. So look at like whatever you have in your portfolios, whether you got one house or 10 house, is there anything that could create some danger for me? If the market does go down, worst case scenario, if the market goes down, I'm trying to get rid of any of those. Right now because here's the deal if the market goes down gets worse that economy gets tougher then i don't have to worry about those anymore and if it if it gets better essentially i'll regret it a little bit like oh i could have kept that and made money on it but the cool thing is if the market's fine that means my old business plan will work again my old business strategy will work again and i'll be making tons of money again so it's like if you have anything out there that like might hold you down like just get rid of it now like take the beatings take the losses it's like every time you do a layoff, right? When you do a riff, you're a reduction in force. It's not fun. It's like the worst day ever. You go through and you're telling everybody, like, hey, I know we felt like a family and I know we've got this going on and here's a severance check, but I can't afford to pay you anymore. And it's like the most heartbreaking moment in entrepreneurship. Yep. And then two months later, after all the severance payments have been paid, you have your first cash flow positive month again and you're like, okay. Now I can sustain this. Now I'm off. Now I'm off to the race again. Now my new business plan set. So like rip the bandaid off. If you got anything, that's creating some issues right now in strategy, rip the bandaid off and then stay patient and wait for your moment. Cause there will be a big moment. And it may be one of those moments where you're able to go really, really big to create lifetime wealth over a three, six, nine, twelve 12 month period.
0: Love it. All right. So I'm going to ask you, got to ask you a couple questions about the portfolio. Cause that's just nuts. Um, yeah. First thing and I'm curious I don't know if this is if this is safe to ask so as gobros we're all super honest or super open I don't know if you're uh, cool but if you are and if not I'll take it out but yeah me uh, can I ask you your horizontal income on that
1: Yeah so the I have a pretty healthy horizontal income
0: <laughs> I remember the, you uh, saying that while we when we met
1: Yeah so the so right now I draw about $75,000 a month um with another partner I think sometimes now in 2020 2021 we also have these big refinance you know things that hit that also helped that sometimes averages out into there. Uh, yeah. but yeah, so that's, that's my horizontal draw check,
0: you yeah, know, after, not bad for passive.
1: Like, yeah. So like that's, that's passive. That's, um, that's other people running the stuff. Now, once a week I meet with the the team. It used to be more active, uh, cause it's like self-managing. I don't hire property managers cause I don't trust them. I think that's, yeah. that, at that, that scale you've got to
0: do it yourself.
1: Sometimes you have to use them. I use them in some cities, but most of the time we don't. But the what's really cool about that big old passive income number, David, is, man, it took me a long time and a lot of work. And my first year into it, by the end of year one, my passive was at like five or $6,000 a month. And I was still thinking like, man, I worked really, really hard this year. I flew to Texas every month for five days. So that's like, you know, 60 days without my family this year where I was working in a town I don't live in half the time I was changing locks myself doing. It. So at the end of the first year, I wasn't like this was a really good plan. I was like, man, I hope this is a really good plan, because if mm-hmm. I just if I just sold a few of these, I would be able to like start flying in like better airlines again. Yeah. You know, I'd be (laughs) able to like eat some of the stuff because remember in 2012, Southwest is
0: great. You get to pick whatever seat you want if you're first. You
1: get to pick your seat (laughs) as long as you're on first. I mean, 2010, (laughs) 2011, I was making so much money. I was wasting money. I didn't know what money was. I was a very bad steward of my money. Yeah. And then I remember saying, if I ever got another chance again, man, I would give so much more away, experience all these things I would do different. So, you know, 2015. I'm just telling you the number is big now, but it took, uh, it took working really hard the last eight years. Very proud of it. I think anybody can do it as long as you're willing to just hit singles for a long time. Cause yeah, like I said, at the end of that first year, I was still not convinced this was a good plan. And I had over a hundred houses at that time. I mean, even the end of the second year when I'm like 200 houses in and you're learning the pros and cons of like owning your own property management company. And like, you're having some tenants sue you and like, like it's going right, but it's going wrong. And the stuff that's going wrong, you lose sleep over. I still wasn't like, this was a great idea.
0: When did you move to Austin in this process? Yeah.
1: So I moved to Austin in 2019. That was like the, the end of December, 2019. That was like the best bet ever.
0: It was four years before you moved to Texas.
1: Yeah. Four years. So flying and part of it near the end. It was cause I was like, I'm flying out here all the time now. Man. Not so that was one thing. It was so much travel. Um it was also like California income tax. By the oh, time yeah. 2019 in 2018, me and my family, we traveled all over the the world. We pulled our kids out of school in twenty seventeen. We actually wrote a book about homeschooling through that process. But we like we traveled around the world. I wasn't even I was only in California like one month in twenty eighteen. And I still got hit with this giant California income tax bill. So that was that was part of reason number one. But at that time I thought I was gonna live in California and in Texas. I just wanted to fly less. I wanted to not have the income tax thing. Well, COVID hit March 2020. We were in Texas. We were actually in Hawaii when it hit, came back to Texas. And three weeks later, I guess maybe three or four weeks later, in Austin, Texas, life was pretty normal. Um, we were planning on being back in California by April to stay at our California house. And it wasn't normal there. And we came back in August uh, 2020. We had through a big party with a bunch of GoBundas friends, a bunch of GoBros. And cause we had a giant party ranch in California. And when people came over, several of them were like looking over their shoulders and they said, is it legal for us to be here? And I said, you haven't been anywhere since March. And they said, no, I haven't been anywhere since March. So that was like the, the, the nail in the coffin for us. It was like, all right, we're going to sell our property. We're gonna sell the last of our California assets. We're not going to uh, do anything anymore out there. And
0: yeah, I uh, not to talk about me, but the 32nd, I was stationed at Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California, 2019, summer, yeah. 2020, 2021, summer, and my wife, that last year, year and a half that I was in, had moved back to Missouri, took her old job until I got out, and so in March, I remember it, I don't think I'll ever forget it, so the Marine Corps has this way of putting you on, we we call it duty, it's a 24-hour shift where you're in charge of the unit's main building, and you do... Uh, You walk around and make sure everything's secure. It's whatever it's, it sucks, but uh, it's 24 hours. You get to be awake, carry a gun around and look important and angry and make sure things are locked. Super fun. A lot of time to read and think and drink caffeine. I'm on 24 hour duty. The Marine Corps likes to put you on duty at like the worst times. Like it's always the joke. You check into a unit, you get like the 4th of July, uh, Christmas day, you know, whatever. I turned 30 on March 14th, March 13th. I'm on 24 hour duty. So I'm like woo, thanks Marine Corps. And my wife and kids are flying into California March 14th. So I'm going to get off duty and go pick them up. And uh, the night before is when like her school was basically like, if you leave the state, you got to take two weeks off work and all this other stuff. And so, yeah, I remember like, watching how missouri handled everything and how i was dealing with stuff in california and i was like this is just crap like i need to i need to leave as fast as possible so yeah i i can see why you would have stayed at that point
1: yeah that's just it was it's a really quick hit on that we so we ended up we bought a an rv in july 2020 and we started going from state to state and went from texas and we kind of went up North. We like went through Missouri. We went, you know, we went up to, to Omaha, Nebraska. We came back through North, North, South Dakota. Like we hit through 17 States and it was amazing because you, everybody was so different. You'd go into some cities in some States and they said, life is just normal. There's nothing going on yep. here. No yep. change, no anything. And you get in other States and it was crazy and it was crazy and it was intense and it just, that was a really wide opening, uh, eye opening experience for me, just with like, just in general of things of like what we were seeing, what, what we were seeing on the news and what we were being told. It really depended on the city and depended on the state. And it was just very, very different. And, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for the people that had some big struggles in their states were pretty aggressive with some different things because, yeah, because in some places it was like nothing was happening. Yeah. And I think Missouri was one of the first we went to. There weren't any really restrictions when we went in through there.
0: No, other than hospitals. Yeah. And I remember like jogging, like I was training for a half Ironman in California and I would be like cycling and people would be like, where's your mask? Like what?
1: Because you cycled by them. Yeah. It was a weird time, dude. It was a a weird time. And so the California was more extreme than my family wanted to be. So that became the sign for why I was going to finally like live in Texas, the rest of the way they miss the weather though. I tell you what, my family misses the weather. Um, if I sell all my companies and I don't have to worry about taxes and politics as much anymore, who knows? Maybe I'll end up back in, in California if I don't go all the way to Hawaii. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, you can, you, can you can get better. You can get that was weather really without paying. It's living there, too. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason people like California. It's just not the government. <laughs> That's, it's you not, know. It's not,
1: it's not taxes. They never it's, they never think, think for taxes.
0: Yeah. Okay. So... Man. All right. So that's, that's crazy though for four years. So you scaled up this thing super quickly, quickly while living out of state. You built your own property management company. You've, you're, you're flipping a house and then you're, you're holding as many as you can and you're flipping to make the down payments and then you learn the refi. I mean, there's, we've unpacked, I feel like a pretty decent amount of this and we don't have a ton of time. So I guess if I could. You know, sum up all the questions that everyone has. The the thing that they all want is, you know, the secret to getting rich quick, right? So so I think the the best question to ask for that is what were the like what was the 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 hardest what do you think were the hardest things you learned or the or the biggest lessons you took away from scaling and building that massive portfolio? Like what if you could look back to yourself twenty years ago and be like Aaron, for knucklehead, these are the three things that you need to know if you are going to buy a house. Don't yeah. screw this up.
1: Yeah, I tell it. I, so one of these things I tell to all my new hires, and they always think that they might be the exception. So here is an example: to find the right paint, you want it, in order. How do you scale and do hundreds of houses? Well, you I don't need to know. get to the point where you have a painter that you trust that you can just text him an address, and two days later, the painting will be done. You need to have a carpet person that you can text, and three days later, the carpet's going to get installed, and he knows what kind, and he knows the rate, you know, and you've got to have a window guy and a landscaper. And so you have to have all these people you can trust because near the end, like what we have now, we buy a house, our system sends out an email to like nine people, and in six days, the house is ready for the market. It's been done by our specs. So one, we have to have like our set of specifications what our house needs to look like. If any of you guys have flipped five or six houses, you could actually spend an hour, write down the specs you want the rest of your houses to be and go do it, right? So it's ones with a spec sheet. Two is with unit rates. Once you find people you trust, one of the problems with construction is you send someone out there. They want to go give you a quote. Then they want to send it back to you. Then you're going to negotiate. Then you got to go get another quote. You can't scale like that. You got to have somebody you're like this is their rate. I know it's a good fair rate. I'm always going to use them. And then I don't have to worry about like using other contractors. So you got to have these set people, right? And like, how do you find them? Um, I remember once the, so my landscaper in California, the very first house that she did with us, her little kids were in the car while she was installing the last planter. Her, like one of her kids was like in a pack on her stomach while she was like doing this final install. And um, maybe like the third house They had sent me a a quote for landscaping, and it was going to be $4,000 worth of sod. I approved it. All good. It's a house two hours from where I live. Uh, When she sends me the final invoice, she goes, hey, it was actually only $2,000. We didn't need any sod for the back. We were able to bring it back with fertilizer. Now, I would have never known any different if she would have just billed me $4,000. But I knew in that moment I could trust her for anything. Because she was going to come back to me and say, hey, you already approved 4000 but you only owe me 2000 The It was a big deal. Um, yeah. So now, so then she did 1,000 houses for us. And at the end, they had like seven company trucks and lots of employees because every house that we did, they did, plus they did other people. So they were like starting their business with us, and it really grew. I was had a window guy once on a sliding glass door. He's like my sixth window guy I was trying. And a sliding glass door that had lost all of its like whatever. whatever. It's like fading, it's coming apart. And I tell him to go replace it. He sends me a quote eight hundred fifty bucks. Cool, go do it. He calls me back and says, "Hey, I was able, actually, able to get the the manufacturer to cover that window under warranty, and they're going to send a replacement." Okay, cool. And he goes, "And I also had one in my shop, so I'm just installing the one that I had in my shop for you for free. And when they send me the replacement, I'm going to get it in two weeks. Does you don't you don't have to pay me anything. Oh, man. I've never used another window person ever."
0: No, yeah.
1: Because he could have told me, he could have done the same exact thing and still sent me the $850 bill. Yep. His name is Joe Garza. Like you're in Northern California, he's still doing windows and he's an amazing, amazing guy. So, all right. So you have to find those trades. The other side of that though, is you will have 10, you'll have to hire at least 10 before you get a good one. So you hire a painter, you say, here's our unit rates, here's how we're going to do it. The, um, they say yes or no. And then, this one sucks. So, if, and, and every time it happens, my, pe- my employers are like, man, they didn't show up. I kept reminding them they didn't show up or they did a bad job or they didn't do it for the right price or they took them five days instead. Every time you have to fire a trade, you are one step closer to the good one. So just know like you need to find, you're not looking to finish this house. Mm. You're looking to find a trade contractor that can do every house from now on with very little management. And so to do that, you have to try out 10, try out 20. So every time you have a bad trade, you're one step closer to the good one. The good ones are few and far between, but they're out there. But just know that your mission is to find this team that's going to do every one of your houses for the rest of your life in that area. So every time you have to fire somebody, that's great news because they were not the person. You're one step closer to the person. And so every time I remind somebody, like, yes, it's going to take 10 painters before we find the good one. And they're like, well, this is our first house we're doing in San Antonio. Cool. Well, don't expect this painter to work out. And they're, and they're always telling me, no, this one's going to be different because I did this. Just trust me. Yeah. We're going to fire 10 guys before we find the right one, but we will find the right one. So don't get discouraged um, as you're doing that process.
0: I love that there. I mean, that's so good. And it's funny because I always joke with people. I'm like, I'm the best, worst business owner ever because I'm not good at design. So I always just tell, you know, I'm like, I want a contractor who, or a, a, a tile guy who calls me and says, what color tile do you want? And I'm like, you're the tile guy. That's your gig you know like i tr- that's what you're here for you're so good that you you know the thing you know and you're the paint guy you you know, I'm like, I want a team that's so good that I text them an address and the house gets built. Yeah, And, you know, it makes me probably the worst business owner, but in some ways there's probably some perks to that. When it works, it works. And when it doesn't, oh my God, I'm a mess, but usually it it works. works. So (laughs) there's a lot more that goes into that obviously, but I don't want to run the show off the, off the, you know, timeline here. So my goodness, Aaron, there were some real nuggets in there and i appreciate it so much and i'm really glad that we got to sit and have a much longer conversation than our 90 seconds of of uh you know heat yeah, and I mean, fun in tahoe, and, in tahoe. so uh, thank you very much for joining me is well i guess uh first off where can people get a hold of you and second uh what you know how can how can i or or the the community uh be of add value to you? What, what would be, uh, if someone's, you know, looking to reach out to you, what would be a way that, you know, we can help.
1: Yeah. And thanks for having me on. And I'm sorry. That I'm so, i was so long winded on my story at the beginning. I know oh, that eats no. up a lot of our time. It's and a good story. It's a good story, but there's all, I always like, man, I should have gone more into tactics because there's everybody likes a good story, but what everybody really needs is tactics. If you guys need more tactics, Right, go follow me on Instagram. That's the I'm everywhere out there. You people can email me, text me, Facebook. I am the most active on Instagram. It's my favorite method to meet people, to follow people, to share content. I record a lot of videos, a lot of clips about strategies that people should be following, you know, what news to be following that's out there, you know, how to flip a house, like lots of different things like that. So if you want to have any questions about anything, find me on Instagram. I've got a couple old uh, videos on YouTube, too, of, like, where we taught our painters how to paint for our unit rates or, like, how we did this this huge, you know, massive $30,000 flip in four days where it's gutted to the studs. And it's just to show people, like, how fast stuff can actually get done when you're using good teams. There's some fun content on there. I own a company called Foreclosure Listing Service. So if someone's in Texas, they want to buy foreclosures, go to flsonline.com. Um, or if you want to do like Distress Leads Nationwide, i own a company called PropHawk. It's P-R-O-P-H-A-W-K. But the big thing on there is there's like, uh, there's all sorts of ways for you guys to make uh, make money in real estate. Both those websites have good chat questions. So you could be asking our people like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Would this be a good site for that or not? If it's not ours, they'll tell you where to go. There's plenty of free places out there too. There's lots of ways to do work uh, with, but, Yeah, I mean, find me on Instagram. Ask me some questions. Um, I'm trying, like, what am I doing big right now? Like, I'm trying to, I also have the podcast, Real Estate Rockstars podcast. That's mostly for real estate agents. Um, But if you're an agent or thinking about being an agent, I think it'll add a whole lot of value in your life. But what I really like is people listen to my podcast, find me on Instagram and telling other people about the story and listening. And if I add any value for you, like, send me a message. There's probably a bunch of questions that David wanted to ask that I was too long winded. So come ask him on there. I'll record a video when you ask me, I'll tag David in it. We'll try to get the answers out to you guys um, for something else. Since we used up a little bit too much of our time.
0: (laughs) Oh, the show was great. Show was great. And for anyone who didn't catch it, that was at Aaron Amuchastegui for the Instagram. And it will of course be in the show notes with everything else. And brother, thank you very much for joining us today. This was awesome. David, thanks for your time, dude. A lot of fun getting to know you. Absolutely. Right back at you. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from military to millionaire dot com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.